Welcome to Rising Tide, a podcast for career-driven women to find inspiration, find courage, and find their voice. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Margaret Winnegar. And for the last three years, I have been obsessed with understanding the female experience in the workplace, pulling from over a decade of personal experience as a female leader in male-dominated spaces, Combined with over 80 interviews with highly successful and aligned women, I have crafted a practice to equip women to get the career they want. If you or someone you know is an ambitious woman in leadership or female founder who is looking for genuine connection with other powerful women and wants to design a career on her terms rather than have it defined for her, Be sure to check out the QXR cohort kicking off this October. You can learn more at my website, margaretwinnegar.com. Applications are now open. Let's get to today's episode. I've had multiple floundering periods throughout my life where I just didn't know what I was doing or where I was going. And I think that those are points in time where I like kind of lost faith in my direction a bit. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know why I was where I was at the time, but now looking back on it, it makes total sense. Meet Dr. Kelly Renner, the program chair of psychology and social sciences at Franklin University, where today she oversees 300 plus students, faculty, and curriculum for over 30 sections and is an award-winning professor. Although today Dr. Renner is operating in her zone of genius, there were many times along her journey where she felt lost. Despite identifying a deep love for psychology in high school, where to apply that passion was often unclear. She would try her hand at sports psychology and mental health counseling only to run into insurmountable barriers that helped her realize these were not her paths. After nearly 15 years, Dr. Renner realized that all of those experiences prepared her for the role she was ultimately meant to do. On today's episode, Dr. Renner role models the power of saying yes, how being open led her from floundering to figuring it out, finding the best next step and making the time count wherever you are. Dr. Renner holds a master's in counseling, a PhD in educational psychology, and she is a certified professional counselor in the state of Ohio. I can't wait for you to meet this incredible woman. Enjoy. Welcome to Rising Tide, Kelly. Thanks, Margaret. It's great to be here today. Okay, y'all, you can't see my face, but surely you can hear my voice and how giddy I am because I knew Kelly when Kelly was Kelly B and we were teammates back at Miami. There's something that it makes my heart so happy. You know, we had we hadn't touched base in a long time since you were a couple of years ahead of me. So you had graduated. And I remember when I was on the team with you, you were just one of the teammates that I just felt such a strong connection and pulled to. And then I just have seen you really over the years, just kind of following along on your journey, doing remarkable things. And so I am so honored that you are here and that we're getting to share your incredible story. And I'm going to get to learn even more than what we we've already talked about when we were catching up. So I'm so thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I usually like to get us started in present day. So people kind of have a flavor of where are you now before we jump back in time? So I would love it if you would tell everyone what it is that you do. Okay, sure. Yeah. I'm currently the program chair for psychology and social sciences at Franklin University. And basically what that means is I oversee all aspects of those programs from scheduling faculty to teach to ensuring the curriculum is inclusive and updated, 
to other, I guess, housekeeping things related to running the programs. My main goal is to support students. I want to see students graduate. I want to see students move on either in their academic journey or in their professional journey because that's what they're there for. And we are not a institution that is trying to be exclusive. We're trying to be inclusive. And so a lot of students that I work with are non-traditional students. These are students that have their own families. These are students a lot of times are working already. I have students that are in high school still that are trying to get some college credits before they actually go into a more traditional college setting. I also have grandparents that have gone back to school that are setting a educational example for their not only their children, but their grandchildren mm. um, as well. So those are the, the types of people I work with, and I absolutely love it. And then in my spare time, I spend time working in the community as a mental health advocate, and mm -hmm. I serve on a few boards related to mental health, and I'm very passionate about breaking the stigma related to mental health and ensuring that people who want and need services are able to get them within their community. Gosh, isn't that just so needed right now? That's amazing. So this is a lot that you do both outside of your nine to five, but then also this amazing advocacy work you do and mental health. I mean, this is a lot to oversee between scheduling and cur curriculum and then just supporting the students. How are you doing all of that? Like, can you give us a flavor and even to like, give us a flavor of like size and scope of what you're overseeing too. Cause I think that helps paint the picture too, of just how much you're responsible for. <laughs> so size and scope, we have about 100 social sciences students, about 200 ish, maybe a little higher psychology students. And that ebbs and flows obviously each term, but usually around 30, 35 sections that need to be scheduled. So we run multiple sections, obviously of the same course. Because right. a lot more people take Psych 110 than take right. a higher level psych course. So part of it is that Tetris of organizing the schedule. Yeah. Take us back then. When you were at Miami, so mm -hmm. you were a collegiate swimmer, you were studying what and what was the vision when you graduated of what you were going to do with your degree? I was majoring in psychology. I'm one of those weird people that never changed their major, but my direction changed. I thought that I was going to be well, a psychiatrist. Can I ask you something? Mm -hmm. Did you know coming into college that that's what you wanted? Yes. How did you know? I took a psychology class in high school, like a college prep kind of class. I don't think it was actually for any college credit, but it was like an intro psych class. Sure. And it was my favorite class I ever took. And mm -hmm. I just, have always been fascinated by human interactions, by the brain and how we work with one another. And so, yeah, I just kind of always knew that I wanted to be in psychology, but I thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist and a psychiatrist mm -hmm. is a medical doctor that prescribes psychotropic medications. And so I thought I was going to med school. And so I did all those fun courses, like <laughs> organic chemistry and stuff like that. Okay. So you, you never changed from having a psychology major, but you mentioned that you pivoted. So you came in with the vision of going in, being a psychiatrist and then where and when did it shift that you pivoted directions? During organic chemistry. <laughs> that was when I was like, no, this is not for me, some people get organic chemistry and mm -hmm. we know some people we swam with who definitely got it. Like it was no big deal to them. 
it was like a different language for me. And language never has been my strong suit either. (laughs) Going back to Spanish in high school, it just wasn't fun. It wasn't interesting. It wasn't enjoyable. And I just knew that it wasn't for me at that point in time. And that was probably end of sophomore year, I want to say, beginning of junior year, sometime in there. I figured that that piece out. <laughs> so then how did you figure out what you were going to do, what direction you were going to take that degree? Well, I floundered for a bit. There was a period of time, and I've had multiple floundering periods throughout my life where I just didn't know what I was doing or where I was going. And I think that those are points in time where I like kind of lost faith in my direction a bit. And I didn't know why I was where I was at the time, but now looking back on it, it makes total sense. So I had this period of time. I didn't know really what I was doing. I still liked psychology. I knew I was going to major in psychology. I was involved with one of the psychology professors research programs that she had for students and primarily undergrad students. And so I got to get my hands dirty, if you will, with some research. And I really enjoyed that piece of it. So I was like, I'll just stick with this. I never had any doubt about that. I wanted to be in psychology in some realm, but just that psychiatry wasn't for me. And then the funny thing is like really looking back on it and looking at what psychiatrists do today, it's really only seeing patients for 10, 15 minutes at a time and prescribing medications and updating their medications to fit, you know, the right dosage and trying to minimize side effects and those types of things. Mm. And that's not what I wanted to do. I never really wanted to do that. Like I wanted to sit and talk with people and, and help people, which was really my motivating factor was to always to help people. I mean, yes, that is helpful. And yes, I believe that medication can really help a lot of people and does a lot of good with people who, you know, need that for mental health, especially that's not my area of expertise or something. I would not enjoy sitting with people for 15 minutes and just pushing them through and writing scripts all day, every day. It it wasn't what I was meant to do anyways. That's really great. Cause it's that no, like knowing of like, it was organic chemistry that, that kind of was the tipping point. But as you learned more about the profession, you realize like there, there wasn't alignment there at all with what you envisioned of where you could best fit, best serve. Okay. So take me through your, your team. Have you done this great research project? So you realize you really enjoy doing the research and doing a study. What happens next? I went on and got my master's. And my master's is in community mental health in counseling. I went to West Virginia University and it was a very applied program, meaning that literally the first day of the very first class, our professor sat us down in pairs and said, I want you to counsel each other. And we all looked at each other like, well, we don't know how to do that yet. That's why we're here. But he wanted us to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and seeing what we did know and the soft skills that we, some of us did already have and where we needed fine tuning. Obviously we needed to learn theory. Obviously we needed to learn, you know, the general structure of a counseling session and those types of things, but there was the ability to sit and talk with someone and support someone Mm -hmm. that I think most of us already had, maybe all of us, I don't even know, but yeah. Right. Okay. All right. So you mentioned that the focus here was mental health counseling. Mm-hmm. All right. So you go through graduate and then like, okay, what's next? 
Well, I just kept the party going, Margaret. I just kept going to college because I didn't know what else to do. And I knew I was good at college. So I just so kept going to college. Pause, can I pause you there for a sec? This is really interesting to me. Did you ever entertain going and working or did you always know that you were going to go for an advanced degree and go get your PhD? I think I always knew that I wanted to be a doctor mm-hmm. and I thought that it was going to be a medical doctor. And then I was like, mm-hmm. no. So I think I still knew I was going to be like, a PhD doctor. Right. I mean, it felt very natural as everyone else was. And I don't know why, now that I think about it, everyone else was getting jobs in counseling agencies when we were finishing up our master's and I was applying for doctorate programs. Mm. And I think I just always thought, yeah, I'm going to go on and get my doctorate degree. I I think I always kind of knew that. Okay. So you go down to Florida state Yes. Pursue. So did you actually move to Florida now? Yes. I lived in Tallahassee for three years. Wow. Okay. So that in and of itself is, that's a lot. So you go from Ohio to West Virginia and now you're down in Florida. So here, if I've got this right, you educational psychology with a major in sports psychology. Yes. Okay. So what does that mean for us non-psychology people? (laughs) The vast majority (laughs) of my time I spent working with athletes on performance enhancement, overcoming a slump, coming back from injury, getting their head in the game, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I had some great opportunities at Florida State to work with athletes in that capacity and learn how to do that. Obviously, there's a lot of trial and error when it comes to things like that. So that was the vast majority of what my education was. And then my area of research that I was focused on was burnout. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at the time, I should also say, this was a number of years ago, and burnout wasn't a big topic like it is today, and really was only something that we were looking at within the confines of sport. Right, because this was back in like 2007 to 2010 time yep. frame, and really, gosh, burnout didn't really start to become a word that was in our vocabulary until like the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What largely yeah. talked about, right? Well, I'm I'm curious as far as like what were you either looking for or seeking to understand or studying, you know, around burnout and how it manifested in athletes. So I think I've always been interested in burnout because there was a period of time where I swam that I was definitely burnout. Mm-hmm. And it happened right around my transition from middle school to high school. Mm. And it was, I specifically remember one summer and I had every aspect of burnout, all three prongs. I had a reduced sense of accomplishment. I was emotionally and physically exhausted. And I started to devalue my work and my sport and what I was doing. And I just, there was a point where I didn't know if I wanted to keep doing it. I had been swimming competitively since I was five. So I had friends in swimming and that was just kind of what I did. And I talked with my parents and I took some, a little bit of time off and then I switched teams and I went to a different team with a different coach that had a different style of coaching, a different coaching regimen, different coaching philosophy, Mm -hmm. and it fit much better. And then obviously I kept swimming after that. So I was always interested in why did I choose to keep doing this when so many other people just throw in the towel, again, swimming pun intended there. My dissertation, my doctoral chair at Florida State 
Dr. Bob Eklund was very interested in burnout, had done tons of research on burnout. He's one of the top researchers in the field of burnout. And I was just excited at the opportunity to work with him and figure this out and learn more about burnout and, and that type of thing. And I'm still learning. We're still working on it. Still lots of research to do there. But that was kind of where that came from. Yeah. I mean, that makes so much sense too. Cause to your point, like you sticking with it versus moving on. And I think even, gosh, I, what I'm drawing parallels to, even as an adult of this idea of isolating the cause of what you're experiencing, you know, in this case, it wasn't a lack of love for the sport necessarily, but perhaps it was a coaching style that was misaligned with what, you know, lit you up or what really kind of got you excited. And so you know, in your case, like shifting to a different space, different scenery, different coaching, that was all you needed to keep going. And I think there's so much of that for us where like we attribute what we're experiencing to, you know, perhaps we we don't dig in to understand the root cause of what we're going through. And so we think we're solving for it, but we keep experiencing the same problem again and again and again, because we didn't actually get to the root of what was, was getting at us. Exactly. Mm. Yep. How neat. Okay. So, I mean, like incredible athletic program, you're getting to work with the athletes, sports psychology. So naturally you're going to go into sports psychology, right? You graduated oh, in 2010. Absolutely. I was going into sports psychology and Dr. Eklund sat me down right before I was getting ready to graduate. And he said, so where are you teaching? And I said, oh, I'm not teaching. <laughs> I'm done with college now. I've been in college for nine years at this point in time. I was like, I'm done with college. I am going to go be a sports psychology consultant. I'm going to go work with a team, like a professional team, or maybe another college somewhere will hire me. And he just looked at me and smiled and said, okay. And I think that that is one of the greatest gifts you can give mentees in life is like letting them figure things out for themselves. He knew I wasn't going to do that at that point in time. And he could have sat there and probably gave me a very convincing argument as to why I shouldn't even try. But instead, he let me try. And instead, he said, okay. So I went, and this was 2010. The economy was terrible. And universities were looking for ways to cut back and cut spending. And one of the easiest ways would be to either not hire or not replace a sports psychologist for the varsity sports. Professional teams weren't interested at that point in time. Again, it was just a different time frame where there wasn't that emphasis on mental health, that emphasis on you can work with someone to help yourself mentally excel in your sport, just as you work to train physically. It just wasn't something at the top of people's minds. So a lot of what I did was trying to convince people that they needed to hire me and that they needed a sports psychologist on their staff. And all the ones I talked to were like, yeah, maybe in the future. No, thanks. Not right now. So I needed a full-time job because there was no more school to go to at this point in time. School's done. Like I'm finished. So I just decided to fall back on my master's and work as a community mental health counselor. Can you take me back to that time? Cause I just, I'm listening to you describe it and I, I'm relating to it from a different place, but this idea mm -hmm. of being, you know, what sounds like ahead of the curve, you were studying something, you knew the value, you'd seen it firsthand, but it just was not widely practiced yet. Mm -hmm. And you just spent years 
working on something that was now not coming to fruition? Like, where's your head now when you are going to get, you know, you, you end up going to work in mental health. I would just imagine that that must've been a difficult transition period. It was, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. I could also add that at that point in time, I moved home to become a counselor. And I always thought I was going to stay in Florida or live somewhere warm the rest of my life. I had no right. desire to move back to Ohio where we have <laughs> cold, snowy winters, but I just moved home because it made sense for personal and professional reasons and economic reasons as well. Sure. At time. I mean, it was tough because I really did think I was going to be a sports psychologist. This was what I was going to do. I really loved doing it. I thought it was fun. I loved working with athletes. It was great. But then in the midst of maybe that little bit, there was some more floundering there, of course. I realized at least I have this master's degree I can fall back on mm. because I can go get a job as a counselor at any point in time. And I knew that. And so I was like, well, I'll, I'll just do this for a minute to kind of, you know, start making some money. <laughs> right. Okay. So a minute turned into like four years. Yes, it did. <laughs> Okay. So good to like, I mean, Kelly, I got to ask you, cause like, is it just your nature to find the silver lining in things? I, I guess so. <laughs> I, it's not necessarily the silver lining that I'm always looking for. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to paint this like rainbows and unicorns and butterflies picture. I think yeah. it's always looking for a solution. I'm solution oriented. Mm. And so whenever there's a challenge, whether that's with like how are we going to add this into the curriculum or how are we going to support students in this way or that way? I like thinking about ways to find a solution to that. And maybe this is where my optimism comes in because I do always believe there is a solution to every problem. And I just have to work hard enough to figure out what it is and get out there and do it. That's kind of, I think, always been my mentality. That's so cool. And I mean, how interesting that that is likely, I mean, to, to your point, a skill that you were honing all these years that you leverage very much in the work that you're doing now. That's really neat. I love that description, solution oriented and that, that belief that there is a solution, even if it's not obvious, like that is just so unbelievably powerful mentally what that unlocks for us. Oh my goodness. I love that. Okay. You're a counselor, you're working, you're back in Ohio and you're doing this for, you know, for the next four years. So tell us about this time, this chapter. There were aspects of counseling I absolutely loved. So mm. getting back to that root reason that I got into psychology in the first place, I got to help people every single day. Now, the people I got to help and work with didn't always want my help. So that's where the challenge came in. A lot of my clients were court ordered to come see me. They weren't there because they wanted to be there. They didn't really want to talk to me. They had to talk to me. And so that creates a different dynamic. And then it, as I kept working, I was working more and more with survivors of various types of abuse and also with offenders, not the same in the same dynamic, so to speak, but I would see someone who was a survivor. And then my next client would be someone who was court ordered to be there because they had offended in the past. That was challenging. Hearing the stories day in and day out was challenging. And a lot of times being met with a lack of wanting or willingness to change, especially coming from those that are court ordered to be there. They don't 
really buy into what's going on. They're just there because they have to. They're there because their probation officer is going to call them if they don't show up and that kind of thing. So it was really interesting. I learned a lot. I think I have much tougher skin as a result of it. And there's nothing that you or anyone can say to me that's going to surprise me or shock me. I've heard it all at this point in time. So that's kind of, I guess, how that time frame went. Yeah. Four years is a long period of time. And that's heavy, heavy work. You know, these mm-hmm. conversations that you're having, how are you supporting your own mental health and well-being through this process? You know, you're you're in there and every day you're hearing some of these stories that, you know, are potentially just really difficult and a lot of pain. So how are you balancing that, you know, day in and day out? Because it's what you do every day. Well, I thought I was doing a good job, but apparently I wasn't, which we'll we'll get into in my next phase of life. Um, (laughs) I had about a 40-minute commute to the office every day, which for some people that might be long, for some people that might be short, but it was a good amount of time to kind of transition from Mm -hmm. Counselor Kelly to my personal life and Mm -hmm. to being, you know, a wife, a daughter, a sister. I wasn't a mom at that point in time. And I would use that time to kind of decompress and compartmentalize. So I I really tried to compartmentalize my life as to when I was at the office. And again, this is pre-COVID and there really wasn't any therapy that people were doing. They weren't doing telehealth. They weren't doing Zoom calls at that point in time. So it was physically going to the office and being face-to-face and being with these people all day, every day. Mm -hmm. And I felt I owed something to them. If they had the courage and the willingness to come in and to share their story, even if they had to, but they still shared it with me, then Mm -hmm. I owed it to them to be the best counselor I could be and help them however I could in that situation, in that instance. And then I would like leave and go home and I never took notes home. I never did any work outside of the office. So I was like really trying to compartmentalize at that point Mm -hmm. in time in my life. And I thought I was doing a great job. I really did. (laughs) And then it got to one day where I was like, nope, I just, I need to be done with this. Let's talk about that. When was it where you realized that perhaps you weren't compartmentalizing as well as you thought you had been. And it kind of was hit a breaking point. The tipping point was when I thought that there were more people in this world who were offenders or survivors of abuse than not. And then I realized we don't obviously know the statistics on that because a lot of people don't report and don't share that information But it got to the point where I felt like literally everyone in this world has probably gone through this in some form or fashion. And I was like, that's not a healthy perspective to have. And that was when I realized I maybe need to to get out of this because it's starting to affect how I'm viewing the world. And it's not how I want to view the world. And maybe that's selfish. But at the time, I felt like it was what I had to do for maybe my own self-preservation? I don't hear selfish. I think I hear knowing yourself and you have special gifts and talents to give this world and they were becoming compromised. 
And so you were not able to kind of operate in your highest capacity where somebody else very well could. And so, you know, what, what I hear is somebody recognizing an unhealthy situation and a place where like, you don't really come back from that. I appreciate and admire that willingness to almost accept that it has hit this point. And instead of fighting to try to like, you know, like that's one place where I could imagine your solution oriented mind working against you. Right. Because you're like, I, I, I must figure this out. I will figure this out. But I think it probably helped that this wasn't necessarily what you'd always envisioned you would do either. I appreciate your perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh my goodness. Okay. So you have this moment, walk us through now that you have the realization I mean, having the realization is one thing, but then figuring out what you do next is a whole, like that just kind of opens up a whole nother door that you now are walking through. But then what, where were you once you realized this was not for you? How did you figure out what you were going to do next? Oh, I floundered again for a a while. And it was stressful this time Mm. because I couldn't say I was a college student. I couldn't say that I was still, I mean, like I was still a counselor because I was still working, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I started exploring like some really random stuff. Like what, like what kind of stuff did you explore? I'm so curious. <laughs> well, my father was a financial planner, basically, well, def- my whole life, most of his life and was very successful and had a wonderful career. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll go do that. At first he was kind of like, really? You don't have any, I had never taken a business class at that point in time. (laughs) So I decided I was going to take an accounting class and I did. I took an accounting class because I was like, I'm going into business world. Mm -hmm. Why? I don't know. And it doesn't fit. And like, I'm sure you're laughing, Margaret, because you know me and like, I'm not business oriented. That's not really who I am. And (laughs) I don't know. So that was one of the things. I love it. I love the exploration. Because here's what I see role modeled. I'll just call it out for everyone who's listening. It's kind of like a blank slate at this point of like, all right, I'm not sure what I want to do. And this seems like an interesting area where somebody who I admire and love has been successful and I happen to be related to them. So maybe that would be interesting. And I love the way that you explored it, right? You took, you went back to an area where you're happy, which is school. You took a class. And you safely figured out that was not for you. Like the reckless thing would have been to be like, okay, this is what I'm doing now. And instead you, you very safely experimented and then eliminated that as an option. So that's what I hear. Well, it wasn't totally safe. Let me just put that out there. Okay. Say more. (laughs) So I actually started applying to become a financial planner and there's like tests and and various levels of interviewing you have to go through. And I started interviewing and doing this. And now it's like, what was I even doing? It didn't just stop with the accounting class when it should have stopped. One of the things I think is one of my weaknesses is that I don't always see like when there's barriers being put up, sometimes I just think it's another barrier and like, oh, I'm going to figure out my way around this, which, you know, like you've talked about this in a way that's been my strength. It's also a weakness because I'm like, oh, I'll just figure this out. I'll get around this barrier. But maybe that barrier is there for a reason, because maybe that's really not what you're meant to do in this world, Mm. at least for me. (laughs) There's like two call outs there that I love. One is oftentimes our strengths are also our weakness. 
Like, so many times we think they're different things, but they're actually very connected. It's just when yeah. we over index on our strength, that's when it shows up as a weakness. So I love, I love that call out. And then, yeah, how interesting. I'm going to take it away from this specific situation. I'm just curious because it sounds like you've kind of honed in on this. Mm-hmm. How do you recognize now, knowing that it's this beautiful strength of yours, when it's not worth figuring out? I mean, my honest answer is I don't know I have. Like, I really don't know that I have. I find myself whenever there's a barrier to something I'm trying to accomplish, is this a barrier that's in place for a reason? Or is this uh, just a barrier that I simply need or hurdle that I simply need to find a way to overcome it? Mm. And I'm not good at figuring out the difference between the two. And so a lot of times I'll just power through until it smacks me in the face. (laughs) That's not the right choice. (laughs) that's what I tend to do. Well, I appreciate that. Cause like we're works in progress. I think just the recognition that it it happens and even just your ability to recognize the two scenarios now, you know, I think that's just like, I had a coach one time describe our life, like a spiral staircase and thinking of it, of like, you're ascending up the spiral staircase as you learn and you grow. And so the spiral is because you're continuously running into the same situations again and again, but as you ascend, you're seeing them from different vantage points equipped with better or different skills. And so you can navigate them more effectively. So I appreciate the candor about the journey you're on and how far you've already come. So you've alluded to this now. I feel like we've got to go there. We left off that you were full on interviewing, going for financial planning as the next career move. You obviously don't do this. So what happens? There was a opening at Franklin University and my husband worked at Franklin University at the time in a different college, a different department, different area. And he said, you're obviously not happy in counseling right now. Why don't you just come to Franklin or try to apply for this job? And it's overseeing their tutoring. You've been in this type of environment because I had a graduate assistantship when I was at West Virginia University that was their version of the Student Learning Center, and I was involved with it there. And so he said, you really already have experience in this area. Why don't you just work here for a few years, figure out what it is you really want to do? But this might be a nice place where there's less stress in your job on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And just hang out here for a bit, so to speak. So I applied, I got the job and I really liked it. (laughs) What did you like about it? Like, that's so fun, but what did you like? Well, the very first day of the job, the director of the student learning center comes in and asked me how my day was going and how things have been. And I said, it's great. No one told me they wanted to kill themselves today. And then I realized, as I said that, maybe that was a little bit much for people outside of a counseling agency, but I meant it in all seriousness. It wasn't heavy. And the wheels in his head turned for a minute. I could kind of tell he was like, what? Oh, you were a counselor. That's right. And not that I dealt with that every single day, but there were times where someone would open up and share those feelings with you. And it's incredibly heavy and We want to make sure we're we're helping them, supporting them however we can, because the consequences of not are the worst it can be. Whereas scheduling tutors and tutoring appointments for students, 
the consequences of messing up a tutoring appointment and the consequences of messing up in a counseling situation are two entirely different stratospheres when it comes right. to, to burden. And so I enjoyed that. Again, I had great coworkers. I really enjoyed getting to interact with the students and support the students. And it was a great experience. Yeah. I think about like just that part, the perspective of like, to your point, what is and is not, you know, a big deal. And so you had that very lived experience of knowing like these scenarios that I'm in are critical versus like, this is in the scheme of things. Like this is not a big deal. Like that's amazing. Okay. So you do this for, am I getting this right? A year and a half? Yeah. About a year and a half. Okay. And the director of the student learning center left Franklin and I was promoted. He left while I was on maternity leave. So that was really interesting. And so I came back from maternity leave and I was going to be in this role, but things kind of hadn't been solidified. So there was like a little bit of gray area for a minute there. So had, um, had you talked about it before you went out on maternity leave? He called me while I was on maternity leave. Oh my gosh. And said, I wanted to tell you in person, but I know I'm not going to see you. And I want to tell you at least over the phone that I'm leaving and I've enjoyed working with you, blah, 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 blah. And I'm going to recommend that they promote you as the director once you return. It's like, mm. okay. He had left the university by the time I came back from maternity leave. Was that ever something that the two of you had talked about? I don't remember. I mean, I think you know this about me. I'm competitive and I always want to be great at whatever it is I'm doing. And so I was an assistant director. Of course, I wanted to be a director someday. I don't I don't really recall if we ever had like a specific conversation about it or anything, but I don't know. Oh my gosh, amazing. So you get a call and you're on maternity leave, which is also sad too, I'm sure, because you're, you know, this person you've been working for is leaving, but also somewhat exciting of you're coming back. And so it sounds like the transition didn't happen right away, but then did happen eventually where you move into the director role. Mm -hmm. Okay. What shifted in your role? How did it change? I was in more of a leadership position. Before the only people that reported to me through the org chart were tutors mm. who were just hired. I don't know if it was hourly or part-time, that type of thing. Now I had full-time employees at Franklin that reported directly to me. Mm. And so it was definitely more of a leadership role. And I'm thinking more big picture. I'm thinking more long-term and mm. like the direction that we want to take things and what's overall best for students mm. instead of what does this specific, what tutoring session does this specific student need right now? Now I'm thinking more broadly. Yeah. Um, so a bit of a shift from very day to day, very in the moment and what's happening to now getting to kind of zoom out a little bit and look at the bigger picture. So I'm assuming you love this because you are still like, you just kind of increased what you were doing from here. Yeah. Was that a difficult transition for you? Did you like unlock something about yourself that you had never known? Like, I'm so curious going from, you know, what you were doing in a leadership capacity to now much bigger scope, much more strategic thinking. What was that transition like? The way you put it, it does sound like a big transition in actuality. I don't think I ever perceived it as that big of a transition because I was still working with the same people that I had been working with. We mm -hmm. already had a great rapport. 
we already got along well. And I always think that the previous director included us in a lot of the big decision-making, nice. at least in the process, in discussing what we were going to do and those types of things. It was very democratic, I'll say, in a lot yeah. of ways. It didn't feel like that big of a transition. And then I guess also to say is like physically, I didn't even move offices. So my <laughs> office had been right next to the director's office and the offices were mere images of each other, same size and same space and all of that. And so there was no reason to move next door to another office that was exactly the same as my office. So I like physically didn't even move an office. So it felt very, it felt like a very natural transition. Like I already knew some of the inner workings of the student learning center. And so it felt pretty, but yeah, natural is the word that just keeps coming to mind when yeah. I transition to that. Good. That's a refreshing story to hear. <laughs> Okay. So you're, I mean, you're, you're, you're here, you know, it's been several years at this point. Is there ever a moment where you're like, this wasn't what you envisioned for yourself. This was really meant to be kind of a layover to figure that out. Is there ever a point where you start to wonder, like, is this what I'm wanting to do? Like, did you ever kind of have that, that moment of deciding this is what I want and I'm going to go all in or like, did it just kind of organically happen? Yeah, not really because so much was going on at that point in time. So I had my child and I was promoted to this director role. I was only in the director role for, I think about six months, nine months. I wasn't in it that incredibly long. So I really didn't have time to settle down and kind of like think about myself. I was thinking about the student learning center long-term, but I wasn't thinking about myself long-term because I hadn't been in the role that long. Yeah. Okay. So you're only in this role six months and then what happens? The provost approaches me and tells me that the program chair for psychology, it was applied psychology at that point in time, was retiring. And would I consider becoming full-time faculty? And so I have like this flashback to when I had that conversation with my dissertation chair saying, where are you going to teach? And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm no, not for me. And so I had the same initial response. I was like, well, thank you so much for considering me. I'm really not interested in being faculty. I'm really not interested in teaching and overseeing a program. That's just not the direction I see myself going in. Again, this is another situation where he could have thrown facts at me and told me exactly why I should be in this role, why they need me in this role, whatever the case may be. But instead he said, just take some time and think about it, please. That's it. Mm. And so I did. And we talked about it, had a great lunch and talked about it more in depth. And I decided obviously to take the position. I said, I'm not sure that I'm going to be good at this. I'm just really not sure that this is. And he had a confidence that I would be good at this, that I just didn't have in myself. He was like, yes, you will. He'd been the provost for, I don't even know how many years by that point in time. So he had seen a lot of faculty. He knew what it took. He knew what he needed in someone, but I didn't, and I didn't know. And so, yeah, so I agreed. I took the position, very position, very reluctantly. Like I wasn't really excited about it. I just felt like it was, I don't know what I needed to do at that point in time or something. I mean, I think how beautiful that there's someone who, 
clearly had knowledge, a depth of knowledge. It's so that if, if he's saying, I know you'll be good at this, you can trust that. I think that's so beautiful and being able to kind of tap into their confidence in you. And then also so interesting of like the reluctant. Yes. I think so many, so many stories I've heard where that is the case where it's like, I did not picture this for me. You kind of alluded to some of it of like his confidence in you, but like, why did you, you, you could have still said no, you said, but you said, yes. Why? Yeah. He just so confidently said, I know that you will be really good at this and that you can do this. I mean, I do always like a challenge. We know this. And again, my thought was always, well, if this isn't right, I'll just get another job and I'll move on. Right. Cause life had taught you, you could pick yourself up. Yeah. You could figure it out. Right. We know that about you. Life is figure outable. (laughs) <laughs> for the most part. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like it was a combination of somebody who you respected seeing something in you and very convinced of your ability. And then your ability to say, worst case scenario, if this doesn't work out, I know I can land on my feet. Yeah. I know how to do that. So you step into this role. Tell us about that transition. Now, this was a a much more difficult transition. I went from working with a group of people who were very much my peers in age and a lot of different demographics, I think we could say, to working with a group of people where I am pretty significantly younger than most of them Mm. and very skeptical about why I was in this role. They hired me as the assistant director, and I had some time there to kind of prove myself, if you will. And when I became the director, I think everyone thought that seemed like logical Mm. and a natural progression. And there wasn't really anyone questioning why I was the director. In this role, there was a lot of questioning. Why is she here? Why is she now faculty? I don't think a lot of them knew that I even had a doctorate degree. And they were wondering if I was even qualified. It was a much more difficult transition. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. Now, were some faculty incredibly helpful and took me under their wing and kind of showed me the ropes? Yes. And I'm very, very grateful for them. But it was a it was a much more challenging transition in general, just because the work I was doing also was so vastly different than what I had been doing. Yeah. Um, so how did you go about kind of acclimating yourself? Because that's a lot. It's a a new environment. It's different than what you've been doing. And there are skeptics. I just dove in and just worked to learn the programs and learn the curriculum. I taught or co-taught every course in the psychology program within like a year and a half, two years, maybe, which is kind of ridiculous when you consider there's like, I think we have over 10 courses in the, in the program. And so I was trying to understand where things were at and then understand how I could improve them. And all the while, I mean, you've got at this point, what, like a two-year-old at home? Yeah. <laughs> so how are you navigating this? Cause that's a, that's a lot, right? There's a lot of life going on from mm-hmm. work and then just home life, having a little toddler starting to run around. How are you keeping yourself level? I didn't do it entirely on my own. So I had and have my husband helping out. Mm. And what we did was we like kind of staggered our schedules. So I would go into the office very early in the morning and he would 
stay home a little later in the morning and not drop our son off at daycare until like nine. And then I would leave early. So I would be at daycare picking him up at like three or four. And we both felt good mm-hmm. about that, that he wasn't in daycare as long as a full work day. And that we both got some individual one-on-one time with him every single day. And one of the things I, I remember at that point in time in my life was just really trying to make the time count wherever I was. So mm-hmm. if I was at home with him and he was awake, then that was mom time. And that was time when I was going to just be solely focused on him. If I was at work, that was like work Kelly time. And I was solely focused on work and I worked hard. I didn't spend a lot of time just sitting around twiddling my thumbs in my office. Cause if that's what I'm going to be doing, then I should be at home with my child. And if I'm not working hard when I'm at work, then what am I doing there? So my time at work was intense and not through pressure from anyone other than myself. I was going to be the best program chair I could be because otherwise, why am I bothering doing this? That was kind of my mentality about it. So I just really tried to intensely compartmentalize my time and where I was at and be strictly focused on that when I was in that space. So did I have the same number of hours with my son that a stay-at-home parent would? No, definitely not. But when I was with him, my attention was completely on him. We're playing together. We're interacting together. We're doing things together so that we had quality of time, but maybe not quantity. Yeah. I love this about so many women that I admire where you just become ruthless with prioritization. Oh, yes. Yes. No, it's like you almost get optimized when you become like if you choose to become a mother, like you get really good at what is important to you, what you give your time to and making sure that the most important things get done. And if, it, if other things don't get done, then that's okay. But like, they're just that, you know, what the priorities are. I would be remiss since we're getting close on time. Mm-hmm. Given the fact that you were working at a university, I would be remiss if I didn't tackle leading through the pandemic, like not just overseeing faculty, but now, you know, 300 plus students in your care that you're also overseeing. I don't even know where to begin. I'm just going to open up the door to you to share what makes sense or what you feel called to share. I just, I know that that was an unbelievable time, especially in holding leadership roles where you're having to make rapid pivots as you're getting new information. Tell us about that period of time for you in your role. So even to this day, I find myself when I'm talking about things, and I I think I did this earlier in the conversation. I'm like, well, this was before the pandemic when we were like talking about counseling services and how people receive services. I have this point, like for me, it's like my brain is like, oh, well, this happened pre-pandemic or post-pandemic. And that is like such a pivotal point in time because there was so much change in our worlds at that point in time. I will say I feel very fortunate that I was in the position I was in. So prior to the pandemic, yes, I did go into the office every day, nine to five. Well, you know, my schedule wasn't exactly nine to five, but I was in the office every single day for an extensive period of time. And the pandemic hit and everyone, they said, just take your laptops home. And then we just worked from home. Mm -hmm. And while there was like this big work transition for us, 
as far as what was going on with students, we did not have the challenges that a lot of institutions had because we already had all of our curriculum online. Even if it was a face-to-face -face course, we had a shell built out online. The students had already been in that course shell to submit assignments, those types of things. So they're familiar with the platform and how it works. And so transitioning from face-to-face -to, -face to online was, first of all, a small portion of the students. A lot of them were already online. And then the portion that did already had some experience with what we were doing. So I don't think we had as drastic of a change or growing pains related to that as a lot of other institutions did. Yeah. Because in a lot of ways we were prepared. We didn't know we were prepared until it happened. And then we're like, oh, well, look, we already have this. Now, while that was very logical and I'll even say easy to a certain extent, it wasn't that challenging. Yes, there were some issues with student connectivity and, and those types of things, but we were able to manage those really, really easily. I think the bigger challenge that we experienced was, so as I said, a lot of our students are working. Mm. And so they're experiencing changes, not just to their classes, yeah. but to their whole lives as well. And so we have students that usually spent time during the day when their kids were at school to work on their assignments. And now their kids are home and they don't have that kind of uninterrupted time that they did have. Right. Or in the midst of them transitioning their courses online, they're also transitioning their business online. So there was a lot more supporting students in ways we hadn't done before, more personal ways, I would say, than maybe what we ever had gotten into before. I can say, so my policy for late assignments went out the door during the pandemic. I was like, don't even give me a reason. No one's assignments are late. Just get it done when you can get it done. Right. We need everything done by the end of this class. But life happens and people were getting COVID. Their families were getting COVID. Like, who am I to say a paper still has to be turned in on time at that point in time? Right. It just felt silly. And so we supported students more, like I said, but just in more personal ways. And so that was probably the biggest shift for, mm. for us during the pandemic. Not to say that it was easy, but the way you're describing it, it, it feels like you were able to navigate it fairly well, like really well. And whenever I see that, it's usually a like, right. It's like, there's so much more that's going into that than like, it's flowing like that because they're the university had the infrastructure. But then I think about that provost kind of honing in on you. Cause to your point that you kind of hinted at throughout this whole conversation, all these experiences that you had kind of priming you to be the leader that this department needed during this pandemic because you had studied burnout. I mean, how that was <laughs> such a front of mind thing that people were like just everyone, right? That was when that became everyone's buzzword and people were going in and out of it constantly. And here, this is something that you had a deep expertise in from your PhD. Like I, I just think it's really amazing as we look back, how many pieces really set you up. And even to the point of like, is this life or death? Right. And like, in some cases it was, but you were equipped to handle that because you'd already been there before versus like some of the other scenarios, even in a very stressful time, like you had already handled something more stressful. So I just, I think it's amazing. I, <laughs> we could go for hours. This always happens to me. I really have to rein it in at the end. I always ask kind of a closing question 
which is as you're looking back on this career that you've had up until this point, and you think about either something that you've learned along the way, or something that someone taught you that has served you really well throughout this journey. What's one thing that no matter what you want the listeners to take away with them? I think it is that you are where you are for a reason. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's really difficult to recognize that in that moment. And then sometimes it becomes inherently clear as to why. Mm -hmm. I had no idea why I spent four years working as a community mental health counselor. But then once I got into this role in the program chair of psychology and social sciences, if I didn't have that experience actually working in the field, I would not be able to develop the curriculum the way I do and speak the way I do in my classes about what it's like. Because this is our next generation of social workers and counselors and therapists and community mental health advocates. And because I have that lived experience, I am able to be good, I'll say. <laughs> I don't know at what I'm great. Doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll use the word. I'll say it for you. <laughs> Thank you. That experience has led me here. And that's just one example. And then also like we think back to that conversation I had with my dissertation chair that told me, where are you teaching? Oh, I'm not teaching. Right. And him and I are still in touch. And he knows that I am teaching. He knows that I love it. He knows that it's where I'm meant to be. And everything has really clicked into place for me, which is really cool. But there have been multiple times where it wasn't clicking into place. And I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing professionally or what my purpose was. And it can be stressful. And I think, Margaret, you did a fantastic job of painting it in a very positive light. But at times it's incredibly stressful. It's incredibly depressing. It's challenging. It's messy and it's hard. And there's no other way to get around that. But once you get out of those periods of time and then being able to recognize that happened for a reason, I struggled at that point in time for a reason. It was really important because it led me on this specific journey or got me to this goal. It becomes much easier to see that. And I think that comes with like years of experience and years of life. And not everyone's going to have the same lived journey and that everyone's going to have the same lived experiences. And I also recognize that I have an incredible amount of privilege in being able to do what I have done and bounce around around the country and have support from a partner to also raise my son at the same time. And so I have a lot of privilege that has helped get me to where I am. Something I see again and again as a theme on this podcast is this idea of making the best decision with the information that you have. And so, you know, to your point, like we may not always understand where things are going, or we may not even fully understand where we're headed, but taking time to understand what have you learned about yourself up until this point? And then what is my best next step? You can't really go wrong when you're using that as your guiding principle. And honoring that these experiences are kind of like unique to you and that, you know, there is a place where they're meant to be used. And so I just, it's really fun getting to see how all the pieces have come together into the work that you're doing. And it's just, it's been such a treat getting to hear this incredible journey. And thank you so much for sharing your story and being part of this podcast and just really excited to follow along for the next phase. Likewise. Thank you, Margaret. I really appreciate the opportunity. 
What an amazing conversation with an amazing woman. If this conversation resonated with you, I encourage you to take a moment and send Kelly a note and let her know the impact it had on you. I've linked her contact info for you in the show notes. If you enjoy this episode and enjoy this podcast, I'd love if you take a moment, drop us a quick review anywhere you're listening and getting your podcast fixed. As always, I want to say a big thank you to Josh Reedford and the incredible editing that he does for these podcast episodes to help us bring them to life. And I want to say a big thank you to this incredible community for showing up, investing in yourself and continuing to rise. Until next week, y'all keep rising.